0: Today we continue in 1 Corinthians, uh, where we have been the last couple weeks as we remember uh, this series, Freedom in Christ, and talk about it together. Uh, we have been in these, this middle section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians uh, that honestly sometimes we're not sure what to do with, and uh, that continues today uh, in 1 Corinthians 8, and so we're going to look at that together. I invite you to hear God's word together. Paul writes now concerning meat that has been sacrificed to a false god. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes people arrogant, but love builds people up. If anyone thinks they know something, they don't yet know as much as they should know. But if someone loves God, then they are known by God. So concerning the actual food involved in these sacrifices to false gods, we know that a false god isn't anything in this world. And that there is no God except for the one God. Granted, there are so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. However, for us believers, there is one God, the Father. All things come from him, and we belong to him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things exist through him, and we live through him. But not everybody knows this. Some are eating this food as though it really is food sacrificed to a real idol, because they were used to idol worship until now. Their conscience is weak because it has been damaged. Food won't bring us close to God. We're not missing out if we don't eat, and we don't have any advantage if we do eat. But watch out, or else this freedom of yours might be a problem for those who are weak. Suppose someone sees you, the person who has knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. Won't the person with a weak conscience be encouraged to eat the meat sacrificed to false gods? The weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You sin against Christ if you sin against your brothers and sisters and hurt their weak consciences in this way. This is why if food causes the downfall of my brother or sister, I won't eat meat ever again, or else I may cause my brother or sister to fall. is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We couldn't dance at my undergraduate institution. Now, I didn't go to college that long ago, and so you might be saying, "Whoa, you couldn't!" First, you might be saying, "How did you get away not dancing?" Uh, Which is a fair question, and to that I would respond, "I broke some rules." But we couldn't do a lot of things. We. We, we signed a pledge, for instance, that we would not drink alcohol. We could only watch rated R movies officially if they were on an approved list. And I remember hearing about the days when they couldn't play cards, even, at the school. Now, you might say, good Lord, that was quite a, uh, maybe quite a rigid or a or, or, or bubbled environment. And in some ways, yes, yes. Uh, but life was not miserable all of the time at this school. I made friends that I have for life, and the rules didn't feel that restrictive when everyone else was abiding by the same policies. But it seems like the reason why the school abided in this pretty stringent moral code was that they might have found a certain way to read a passage like this from 1 Corinthians now let's talk about what was happening in Corinth. In Corinth, there were many gathering spaces that were connected to the worship of pagan gods, right? So before the days of like banquet halls or country clubs or things like that where you might have a big gathering, they, they would have some type of essentially parish hall that was devoted to the goddess Athena or something like that. And you might get invited to come to a birthday party or the equivalent of a quinceanera in athens or whatever right and 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 they would have a a party that that went on in that idol's temple right now by the time in corinth that didn't necessarily mean that it was always some festival to that god or something like that that was going on but that was what was happening kind of in their culture so people might gather for a celebration And often, at these celebrations, meat would be served in honor of one of the gods. And this created quite a problem for the Christian community. Oftentimes, this passage is read in a way to argue for a particular way that the Christian community to live. In a way that is different, that is different from society at large. In this way of understanding, verse 9 can be read. But watch out or else this freedom of yours might be a problem for those who are weak. In this view, the weak person is the person who doesn't believe in Jesus, the person who is not part of the Christian community. And the way of understanding in this way is, what if this person who isn't a Christian, who isn't part of our community, sees a Christian eating meat in the pagan temple? Or shouldn't we be good examples to those outside of the community? In other words, what if the person who isn't a Christian, who isn't part of our community, sees a Christian eating meat in that pagan temple? Or they see a Christian person playing cards, maybe is what my institution argued 50 years before that. Or they saw them dancing, or they saw them having a drink. In this way of understanding this scripture, the question at hand becomes this, how should Christians live in relationship to the culture at large? Now for some groups throughout history, that answer has been separation, complete and total separation in some cases. Think about monastic communities, right? Monks who go out into the desert to be away, to grow in prayer and holiness and service just in their small community. When we thought about John the Baptist, some together in December, we thought about the community that John might have been part of near the Dead Sea, maybe an early type of monastic community away from all of culture. If you're thinking about groups that are away from all of culture, you might think about Amish people, right? Forming their own community, not really following the ways and the mores of culture. Around, My sister lives in an area that is heavily populated with Amish folks around. And, and our kids really like seeing a uh, horse and buggy going by on the street when we visit. If you've been to those places, whether in Indiana or Pennsylvania or parts of Virginia, where Amish folks have settled, uh, it, it's, it's striking to see folks not living necessarily with all of the modern conveniences uh, and thinking about what it takes to then separate and be part of a community like that. This kind of separation also happens in like very conservative fundamentalist circles, right? Where there's a complete separation from kind of all other aspects of society, especially complete separation from all that could infect the community that is sinful. In these places, Christian art gets created rather than art that is Christian. And it kind of becomes a subculture on its own so that we have Christian music in that subculture or Christian books or Christian movies often copying the dominant forms in their culture. Now I grew up, I grew up in the mid to late 90s in the heyday of this subculture, okay? And and Christian music especially had a copy of everything. So you like how Eminem the rapper sounds? then we have a rapper to match just like that. You like that Alanis Morissette album, Jagged Little Pill? Well, here's another album that sounds, and the cover art looks like it. The problem is it's just not really as good as that album. My undergrad fit this separation mentality. In some ways, where I went to college, was like a monastic-bubbled community. And early on during my time, it almost felt like a Christian camp that she went to, and everyone around was kind of in, was in that way together, right? So on one hand, we have this, a way to think about culture, Christians should separate from culture. On the other extreme of how to relate to culture, there is kind of a you-do-you mentality and a respect for complete individualism. At the center of this kind of mentality, we ask the question, well, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge what anyone else would do? And each person makes their own decisions of morality and interprets everything for themselves. This sounds a lot like America right now. We each decide our own morality and we can't judge anyone else's. And if you think that where this leads sounds like chaos and like it's impossible to discern what is right and wrong, you're probably right about that too. This is not just the way of America and our broader culture, but it's the way of many of our churches. We are in the culture, and we want to appeal to everyone. I think this might be a problem for us Methodists sometimes. What we are known for in general is just being nice. Well, it doesn't go too far all of the time. We're, we're really nice. We won't necessarily tell you what to do like some other groups out there. So on one hand, we have separation, with clear black and white rules, how to distinguish ourselves from culture. On another hand, we have, we have a way to be embedded in the culture and not really to tell anyone right or wrong, but just kind of to be nice and follow a you-do-you mentality. Now, it is tempting to think that this passage about eating, about eating meat that is sacrificed in an idol temple is all about this question of how the Christian community should be related to the broader culture it lives in. However, Paul is not concerned about those outside of the Christian community in this passage. You see, the Corinthians, who would have been invited into the pagan temples and into their festivals, were the wealthier and more highly educated members of their community. That was the only ones who would have known what it was like to be invited to these parties. And their concern was that if they did not eat the meat at the gatherings, that they would appear as rude and as bad guests. Didn't your mother tell you to just accept whatever food gets offered to you from the host, right? But the poorer members of the community were not invited to these things. Remember, there were ex-slaves in this Corinthian community. This was not their scene. So the people who wrote Paul about this issue, about meat being sacrificed to idols, were the people who were invited to the parties. And they considered themselves the ones with knowledge. They were the kind of highfalutin folks. They would say, well, come on. We can just go to that party. We know that, that, that Athena's not a real God, that it's just kind of a story that's part of our past. Don't worry about that. And they wrote to Paul, assuming that Paul would agree with them, and set the record straight for those other weaker people, the people without knowledge, and so that they would be able to eat the meat from the idol's temple because, after all, it was delicious. And so Paul quotes, he quotes their letter, portions of it to them, just like he has done continually in this book. And we don't always get it because there's not clear quotes, but it's clear that, the, that in verse 1, they told Paul, we know that we all have knowledge, We know that we all have knowledge, Paul. And Paul responds about this knowledge with a warning, right? He says, knowledge makes people arrogant. In other translations, knowledge puffs people up, but love builds up. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about at this point? We're not really sure, but somehow this knowledge that the people have is, is making them appear as arrogant or prideful. And so he quotes them again in verse 4 when they say, we know that a false god isn't anything in this world, and there is no god except for the one god. Again, Paul agrees with their premise. When they're saying we know that a false god isn't actually anything, he says, well, we, yes, that is true. That is true. And there's no God except for the one God. He says, you're right. And in verse six, he actually quotes either a hymn. It's either a hymn or like a creed that they would say to each other. There is one God, the Father. All things come from him and we belong to him. Then there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things exist through him and we live through him, right? So Paul is describing the unity that exists just in the singular God, reminding them of their monotheism. But then what happens, right? Right after that, he responds that some people do not know. Some people in their community cannot, cannot differentiate from this. And so he says there's going to be members of their community who see you coming out from the idol temple and they're going to think that it is okay to go back and worship in those temples like they used to do. And then he quotes them one more time. Food won't bring us close to God. We're not missing out if we don't eat and we don't have any advantage if we do eat. Paul agrees. With each of these statements that the Corinthians have made. The problem is that he disagrees with how they are living it out. So, in other words, Paul agrees with the Corinthians' theology when they say this isn't to a real God, Paul agrees, but he disagrees with how they are applying that theology and how it affects and infects their community. Their knowledge, which they think gives them the freedom to do anything is leading them into arrogance, Paul says. Even worse, it's leading others astray. So Paul discusses the freedom that they have, and he suggests that their freedom might even be a problem. Read verse 9 again that I read to you early. But watch out, or else this freedom of yours might be a problem for those who are weak. In this case, when Paul's talking about those who are weak, he's not talking about people outside of the church He's talking about others in their very own church community. The ones not invited to the parties at the idol temple. Freedom then becoming a stumbling block. Freedom is a problem for someone else in the community. This is why Paul began this entire section with love. Remember when he said, knowledge puffs up but love builds up. The highest order for Paul is love towards the brother or sister, not freedom to do what I have the right to do. The highest order is love for the brother or sister within the community, not the freedom to do whatever I have the right to do. Do you hear this real connection that we have with one another as Christ's body? We want to make this passage about what I can do or what I can't do, because that's easy. Not dancing is easy compared compared to having to love every person within my Christian community together. We want to make it about a black and white, what is right and what is wrong. Just tell me what to do, preacher, and let me get on my way so I can be a nice and decent person. And the problem is, is that that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, that is, the, eating meat sacrifice to idols is the symptomatic issue. At the root of it is how we love one another in Christian community. But listen to the seriousness with which Paul is talking. He says, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You sin against Christ if you sin against your brothers and sisters and hurt their weak consciences this way. And Paul might be saying this, Christ died for this person, and you can't even change your diet? Those with the knowledge in his community are called to place themselves under the others. This is the self-emptying logic and pattern of the gospel of Jesus. It is that those who have the power and those who have the opportunity place themselves under those who do not. It is looking out for the people most in need in their church community. It is looking out for the people most in need in their broader place. Friends, what we recognize, what we recognize when we read this passage is that we are not free agents. Three chapters after this, Paul is going to introduce this metaphor that he brings about the body of Christ. And he's going to say, how can the hand say to the foot, I don't need you? And Paul's talking about spiritual gifts and all sorts of things when he brings in this idea about Christ's body. But at the point of it all is that locally together we have all the parts of the body that we need. And we can't live without any of them. Do we understand that we are not free agents? That our actions affect the Christian community within the church? Our actions affect one another that we can lead people either towards Christ or we can drive people away from him. How many of us would say that this is true for someone we know, maybe within our very own families, that maybe someone we know close was driven away from the church not because they think the ideas of it are dumb, but because of the actions that they experienced within Christ's body. How many people is that their experience today? So, friends, what I want to say today is going to sound a little bit crazy, but so does the Christian message all of the time, and it is this We are free to be bound. We are free to be bound. This is the logic of following Jesus, is that when we enter into this community, we immediately are bound to one another. By the waters of our baptism, we are connected to one another. We can't just leave and depart from one another because we belong to each other. We're not just free agents. Friends, that might be one of the hardest things for us to get because for the last 200-some-odd years, our Christian ideas have merged with American individualism to such a degree that we think that each of us are just like our own little soul box or something sitting here in this place together. And it's kind of like a you get what you get and I get what I get and isn't that great? And we'll all go home and do our thing. And the fact is is that we are deeply and integrally connected to each other as Christ's body. That is really, really true according to what Paul is saying. And that is really, really hard. It is a lot, lot harder than just telling you to no longer eat the meat sacrificed in the pagan temple. There is a reason Paul devotes this entire letter to the unity of the body of Christ. That is at the heart what it's all about. It's because it's hard to do and it's a lot harder than following rules about not dancing. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we recognize that our culture and the the way in which most of us have grown up is geared towards our own individual and personal freedoms. And that oftentimes when we hear that word freedom, that's what we think about. And then we tie in the freedom that we have in Jesus that frees us to do, frankly, kind of whatever we want. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. That's what we might sing. But God, we recognize that there is something more going on in what Paul writes to us today. And that is about love. It's about the mutual submission required in love. It's about placing ourselves under one another and especially in your church. And God, we recognize when I bring up places of hurt that have happened in the church and the Christian community, there might be people sitting here today for whom that brings up a lot. And God, maybe whether they're tuning in or they're present here today, They've been burned. And it's, it's, it's amazing that they're even back in, in a church building period, considering this because of how much hurt has been caused. And Lord, that breaks our hearts. God, we know that we have maybe even been, whether intentionally or unintentionally, on the giving end of that kind of hurt in the church. And God, not that we're called to live perfectly all of the time or that we're going to. We are called to it, but we're not going to. But God, you call us towards that continued way of laying ourselves down for one another and for the freedom that that brings. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, help us to see those places, to see those things in our lives where we need to lay down what we think are our interests for the interests of everyone else in our church body and that you might help us in those spaces where relationships are difficult or where there's tension to consider how we give ourselves for others. And we pray that you would give us, you would give us that grace and love that you offer to us that we might be able to extend it to the other. In Christ's name we pray, amen.